Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Our guest today is Bryce Tingle. Bryce is a person who has worn many hats over the course of his career. He was a co-founder and partner of Tingle Merit LLP, which focused on securities and corporate finance for growth companies. He has been a founding member of multiple companies active in the technology, energy, and financial industries. He is currently an associate professor and holds the N. Murray Edwards Chair in Business Law at the University of Calgary. And on top of all of that, Bryce literally wrote the textbook on startup law in Canada, one which I used during my time at the University of Alberta and literally the only textbook from my law school days that I still open frequently. Bryce was kind enough to bring his vast amounts of experience on the show where we covered a lot of ground including how Bryce became a startup lawyer and ultimately one of the leading voices in startup law in Canada, what inspired Bryce to write the textbook on entrepreneurial law, the different mindset lawyers need when advising startup companies versus more established players, and Bryce's advice for lawyers who want to work with startup companies. For more on Bryce, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or check out his articles on SSRN. Of course, if you are a lawyer interested in working with startups, make sure you pick up a copy of his book, Startup and Growth Companies, A Guide to Legal and Business Practice. Trust me on this one, it is well worth the price. Links, as always, in the show notes. All right, that is it for me. I hope you enjoy today's conversation as much as I know I did. Bryce, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me uh, on, Matt. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, and you were telling me before that this is your first podcast. I, I'm just shocked. I need to know how you've been able to avoid these, especially being a professor. Uh, cultivating ignorance. Uh, ignorance and the lack <laughs> of charisma, I think, are the key, key factors for those who are trying to uh, avoid getting on podcasts. That's what I'd recommend. Well, your, your uh, string of luck is over and I'm happy that uh, we were able to corner you into doing this one for us. But I think just to start off, I'd just love to hear a little bit about you for, for those who are listening that may not know and just hear your story about how you became one of the leading voices in startup law in Canada. Well, that's very kind of you, Matt. So I graduated from law school and like lots of law students, went off to article at a large corporate commercial law firm. And I found uh, over the course of my articles that I didn't love um, the work I was doing for the big clients that we had. You didn't have much responsibility. Anyone who's, any articling student who's prepared a closing realizes that's not the most interesting work you'll ever do, photocopying documents and putting them right. in file folders. But I did enjoy some of the work I did for uh, earlier stage companies because they were sort of your clients and they wanted your opinions. They were still coming up with, with the structures that, you know, in a big deal, you'd get a term sheet that lots of lawyers and MBAs and experienced investment bankers have looked at for these startups. You know, I remember I went into one board meeting and they said, well, we need to raise money. And then they all turned and looked at me. And I said, I said, <laughs> I said well, uh, trying to think of something useful to say, uh, there's two things you can do to raise money. You can issue equity, that's shares in the company, or you can issue debt. 
And then I looked and they were all writing it down. (laughs) I have found my home. (laughs) This is is the place where I can be value add. So I had lots of friends who'd been uh, nerds in uh, junior high and high school. My apologies to any who are possibly listening to this podcast. I think there's a few Uh, of them, so we're good. (laughs) They'd all become engineers and scientists. And so they were all, you know, some of them were involved in starting things up. It was the mid nineties. So the internet um, was just taking off the dot-com boom. It just struck me as a really exciting, interesting place to practice law, a place where I could, I could make a difference. Oh, that's amazing. So did you practice at a, at a firm for a time and then did you set up your own firm or how did you get more uh, into the weeds of the startup life? So I was, uh, after I left uh, the large national firm who were really great to me, I uh, started up a, firm with my father, Richard Tingle. My dad had been a sort of well-known corporate lawyer in town, and he uh, is someone who just loved practicing law. And so he had left the large corporate commercial firm that he'd been managing partner of actually for a number of years, just in order to focus on practice. And he'd taken all his clients with him, and he'd been keeping some lawyers busy, so he was very quickly kind of overwhelmed. And uh, after a phone call from my mother, I just felt like the right thing to do was, was to help him out. And originally, it was just going to be for a year or two, but it wound up being for more than a dozen years. I practiced with them. Very quickly, we, we hired uh, friends of mine from law school and people we knew who were associates or articling students. We created the firm in such a way that it minimized the amount of administration that had to happen at the firm, and it maximized our ability to work for early-stage companies. You know, we, the economics of the firm didn't depend on leverage. We had a fairly low cost base. It was a fairly efficient organization. So it was just well-suited for, uh, for working for these kinds of companies. Yeah, no, amazing. And through that, from what I understand, you became an entrepreneur yourself, uh, joined several boards, those types of things, uh, and then also became a professor. Maybe just quickly take us through how that journey went. <laughs> sure. Well, I, I, after I'd been practicing for just over for 13 or 14 years, uh, a client came and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I probably should have, <laughs> but at the time it just seemed too good to be true. And uh, so I left private practice and, and, and went in-house. And I had an enormously good time in-house. I did, I did not necessarily enjoy the guy in charge of the company to the degree that I'd hoped. And the company wound up not being uh, successful in the final analysis at large because it got caught up in the 2008 financial crisis. But I enjoyed the work a great deal. And so um, when it was over, I decided I wouldn't go back into private practice and I just um, stay in business. And most of my time there was spent uh, starting up new companies in various areas. And so old clients of mine would call me up and ask if I'd join the founding teams of these companies. And uh, so I did that for a number of years. If I took a formal position with the companies, it was as a director or as the general counsel, uh, but mostly it was just all hands on deck kind of uh, startup company work. And then in 2012, I think, I got a phone call from the dean of the University of Calgary uh, Law School, whom I'd never met, uh, who said that Murray Edwards well-known, very wealthy. Murray Edwards had uh, given a considerable amount of money to the university. And part of that was to be used to endow a chair in business law at the law school. And uh, the law school had been looking for a while for someone to to occupy that chair. And they weren't 
they weren't happy with the applications they had gotten. And so he sort of had started reaching out and someone had provided him with my name. I remember the conversation we had really well because the I asked, I, you know, after saying I was very flattered and, and chit-chatting a bit, I asked him, well, what is the, what is a, the job uh, pay? Said, I, <laughs> Great I got, question. I, I said, I got good news and bad news. And I said, well, what's, what's the good news? He says, an endowed chair. It pays right at the top of the academic pay scale. I said, what's the bad news? He says, you're not going to be impressed with the academic <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been, At least he was honest. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I've been running my life on, uh, on, you know, making virtually nothing when we started out these companies. And I'd always enjoyed teaching. This will probably come up later in the in our right. conversation. And, uh, and I liked the idea that I'd be able to step back from the business and actually reflect on what worked for startup companies and what didn't. So it was a kind of a compelling offer. So I, I, I went in, uh, became a, a law professor and I uh, do all the things law professors do. And as well, I, I spend a uh, considerable amount of time working with startups in various uh, capacities. That brings us up to date. Right. And it kind of leads me into my next point here is that you wrote uh, a book that I'm holding in my hand right now called Startup and Growth Companies in Canada, which I was first introduced to actually at the University of Alberta, as I mentioned to you before with Brian Clements, who is now a colleague of yours at the University of Calgary. He used this textbook in our entrepreneurial law that I took in my third year and frankly kind of put me on the course to, to where I am now. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, not making very much money at the time, at the moment, I should say. So very much in that game now too. But uh, what prompted you to write this? Because uh, you were kind of joking before. It's not as though Canada has the largest market for really anything, uh, but you consolidated a lot of these uh, you know, learnings that you were mentioning into this text. I'm just curious how that came about. Well, yeah, as you, as you point out, viewed as a, com- as a commercial uh, enterprise, writing a, a law book in Canada is, is a spectacularly dumb idea. Um, <laughs> what happened was I'd, I'd gone to the University of Alberta Law School, and a few years after I graduated, I was asked if I would teach a class in legal theory because my undergraduate was philosophy, and, and when I was in law school, I did a fair amount amount of legal theory. And this should be reassuring to anyone listening to the podcast who doesn't have a business background. You could not imagine a background less oriented towards business than mine. <laughs> and uh, so I taught that uh, for a year or two, and I really enjoyed teaching. I loved it. But the problem with legal theory was it was impossible to find anyone to teach with me. And since I was practicing law in Calgary and teaching up uh, in Edmonton, uh, I'd sort of lose an entire day, and I thought, well, the only way I can do this is if I can find some people that, to, that I can bring as guest instructors or co-teachers so I don't have to miss an entire day every week. And so I proposed to them that I teach a class on entrepreneurial law. It's what I uh, teach a class effectively on what I did all day. Um, and they said that sounded great. And so I then started to look for uh, readings uh, that right. I could assign the students. And I went through, uh, you know, Canadian books on intellectual property. I looked at American books, which of course had the law very different, very different legal regime. And uh, there was nothing. I actually, in desperation, wrote the two main legal publishers in Canada, LexisNexis and Carswell, and said, you know, here's my syllabus. Here are the topics I want to cover in a class in entrepreneurial law. It was just a list of the kinds of things that I spent my days doing. I said, you, do you have any books in your catalog that cover any of these issues? And both 
companies wrote back and said, we don't, but if you write that book, you'll publish it. (laughs) I had two offers from publishers with uh, that. uh, in response to something that in no way was a, uh, a suggestion that I wanted to write a book on the subject. I thought, well, <clears throat> if there's no, I mean, there's nothing out there on the topic. It's something that I and lots of other people are doing. I mean, you would have been blind in the 1990s not to see that the, uh, that startups would become really important a feature of the economy. And so I decided to, to write the book. And I worked on it. Um, I was practicing during the day and I'd put my kids to bed uh, at night, and then uh, I'd write the book in the evenings. It took about a year, year and a half of that for the first edition to be finished. So that's how the book came about. So I'd actually written the book long, you know, more than a decade before I became a, a professor. Oh, that's uh, that's incredible. And I have to say, one of the things I really like about it is that it's it's written, obviously, with lawyers in mind. But I, I also feel that this could be very beneficial for just a, a business owner or start, like a founder themselves, because obviously you go into some technical details, but it's really a great framework to think through problems. Is that is that what you intended to kind of give the framework and then the technical pieces? Obviously, you can add at the end or what, what was your approach when you were writing it? So that was absolutely my approach. My idea was to write a book that encapsulated the things I wish I'd known when I started out practicing law in this area. And that included the kind of advice that entrepreneurs and startup teams frequently ask uh, their lawyers. Advice, for example, on, you know, how do we divide up the initial shares between us? Or, you know, can we be an employee? Can we be consultants? Because we we don't want to pay withholding tax. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wanted it something that could be read by an intelligent layperson as well as, as uh, a lawyer. It's sort of the book I wished that I'd had when I started out practicing in this area. Right. And I can attest it's like honestly been the one legal textbook that I've actually read multiple times uh, all the way through. And it's, it's a great resource just to uh, like when I need to get caught up on something uh, to double check that I, I know what I'm talking or at least a little bit what I'm talking about. Uh, and I've recommended it to, to a lot of people actually um, in various different areas. And it seems to have helped so much so that actually we checked uh, last week and it's currently sold out. So uh, your, your popularity is clearly rising here. I can't take credit for that, of course, but uh, it's, uh, I'm glad to see that it's, uh, you know, it's moving copies. Yeah, no, I, I, I am too. And uh, from the sounds of it, I'll be able to afford a candy bar with my royalties. <laughs> You're telling me uh, how much you make per book, which uh, was a bit of a surprise and a lesson in publishing. So I appreciate that as well. <laughs> but I, I wanted a book, you know, that would not just tell you, well, you know, here's the relevant area of law, but it would tell you, look, here's the practice in the area. Here are the right. norms. Here are what people expect. And also, not just sort of here are some contractual terms, but how do these terms play out in the future? Right. If you give this term to an investor, to a venture capital firm, how is this going to come back to bite you possibly, you know, two years from now? What circumstances does this make sense? And then not just, you know, there's this provision or that provision or this other provision, but, well, you know, if, if you're asked for this provision, here's some negotiating points you could make. Yes. This is how to argue against it. And if you fail, then here are some uh, alternatives that are less onerous or that are less likely to cause problems down the road. Right. It, it was an attempt to just really kind of communicate uh, knowledge about how, not just about what the law is, but about how it works in practice. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And and that's what I really appreciate it is because like, you know, it's one thing to read through a precedent from your firm that has a bunch of, you know, almost seemingly random terms, especially when you're getting started. But you give the framework in which to, like you said, intelligently think through this and consider the options and the alternatives and everything else, which I do find is lacking or I found was lacking in a lot of legal textbooks that I read. They kind of, here's the law, but they don't give you the framework through which to think about things. And frankly, I, I think that's one of the reasons I found your book so so helpful. And obviously, as you could probably tell, highly recommend everybody go check it out as soon as there's more copies, of course. <laughs> glad, Matt. Thanks. Yeah. And then I, I do have to ask, how did you balance everything? Because from the sounds of it, you were at one point a practicing lawyer, an entrepreneur, at least part-time professor, uh, and writing a book as well, a textbook. So like, how did you, how were you able to balance all of those? Because each one of those is extremely demanding in its own right. Well, one of the things that helped is having your own clients, which I did in, in the new firm, Tingle Merit, it gives you a certain amount of flexibility because, uh, you know, a client can come and say, you know, I need this done tomorrow. And if it's your client, you can go back to them and say, do you really need it done tomorrow? Or would you just make right. you feel happier to have it done tomorrow? And they go, well, no, it doesn't really need to be done for a week or two. I just want to make sure it's off my to-do list. You can kind of talk to them like that uh, rather than just have, you know, someone in the firm receive the call and then just hand it down to you as a junior associate. Exactly. So that gives you just a, a bit more flexibility. Candidly, one big advantage I had was I married to someone who was incredibly supportive and extremely competent. And uh, she made some things possible that, that probably might not have been possible right. with some, you know, if I'd been a single parent, for example. So, so anyways, that, that was how it could, uh, how it was possible. It was, I had a little bit more control of my practice because they were mostly my clients and I had really supportive family situation. Oh, that's incredible. And yeah, great advice. Cause you're right. When I worked at a big firm, you really don't have any control, like, you know, whether it isn't actually needed for a week. It's if the partner or senior associate or whoever it is you're working for needs a Monday, like there's no real pushback there. So it's certainly nice to be able to have that type of flexibility. I guess switching more now to uh, startup law and, and maybe uh, touching on your your teaching career now, when you're explaining what is a startup lawyer to your students, I'm guessing for some of them, this might be the first time they've heard this concept of like a startup lawyer, because oftentimes it's seen through the lens of a corporate lawyer or, you know, maybe an employment lawyer, IP lawyer, those types of things. And it's, but a startup lawyer is sort of becoming its own thing. And uh, even at my time at Good Lawyer, I've seen this concept emerge where it's like, no, that's something quite distinct, actually, and a little bit different. And sure, it's related to these other areas, but how would you describe, like, what is a startup lawyer if someone asks you? Sure. Well, what I'd say is, is the traditional way that the legal profession organized itself was in, in terms of size. There were big, mature issuers. Usually they were public companies, but not always. And those issuers, they didn't change much from year to year, honestly, and they were the clients of large, usually national law firms. And then there were smaller private companies with just one or two shareholders. They owned corner stores or restaurants or um, local courier services. They didn't also change much from year to year. And those clients were looked after by small law firms or sole practitioners. A startup lawyer is different because they start with a company that is just as small as any company in the economy with just a couple of people sitting around a kitchen table. 
but the idea is it's going to grow very rapidly. How the company looks, looks this year will bear no resemblance to how it's going to look three years from now. Um, they're going to start adding employees. They're going to start adding capital. They're, they're, the business is going to evolve. They're going to move from R&D into commercialization phase. And then the way they commercialize, the money they spend on marketing will all change. And so to me, a startup company, a lawyer is a, is a lawyer who works with companies which have the expectation of growing rapidly. Now, some of them aren't going to grow rapidly, but it's the expectation that matters. They're not being formed to stay small. They're being formed to become much bigger. And that orientation through time, that focus on change, that's what separates sort of the work of a startup lawyer from the other categories of corporate commercial lawyers. Right. No, I think that's a, a great definition. And um, are startup lawyers almost like specialized generalists then? Like in the sense that you do still, you seem to have to know uh, at least a little bit from a lot of different areas, yet there's some highly specialized areas too that, that seem distinct to, to startup law. Yeah, you do have to become a generalist. And that's both for sort of legal reasons and practical reasons. The practical reason is the easiest. A public company can afford to have five or six lawyers working on its transactions. Uh, right. you know, specialists in tax and specialists in intellectual property and securities and employment all being brought in to sort of do their part. But a startup company can't absorb that. They can afford one lawyer, <laughs> typically. <laughs> exactly. And, and that lawyer needs to know enough to be able to give them uh, advice. The, the legal reason is because it's very hard in a growth company to distinguish between different areas of law. We take employment law, for example. A company gets started by a, a tight-knit founding group, they're probably friends, they enter into employment agreements with the company. But as the company changes, their employment roles are going to change considerably. Some of them may prove to be a disappointment. Some of them may quit to start something new. Some of them may be terminated by the board of directors because they're, you know, professional management or, or some new skill set needs to be brought in. So all those corporate governance decisions are tied up in uh, employment law. You can't, right. you, you can't talk about how we're going to manage the company or talk about how we're going to bring in new investors or what those new investors are asking for in terms of corporate governance rights without uh, understanding that this is going to have an impact on your employment relationships. And so, um, and that's true in every area, every discrete area of law where you find specialists. For a growth company, it seems particularly those discrete areas wind up blending together in the kinds of contracts and legal decisions that have to be made. Right. So, okay. So let me put, uh, put myself in the, in the shoes of a student. And I, I come to you and say, look, uh, you've inspired me. I've read your book. I am just, I'm fired up. Uh, I want to be a startup lawyer. What advice are you giving? Like, how do I become a startup lawyer? Because as you mentioned, there's, you need this kind of broad knowledge and yet certain specialties within it. How, what's the best path for, for uh, a young lawyer or someone, uh, a student or someone who wants to change trajectories in their career to follow? Well, for a student, it's easy. And that is, they should take uh, a constellation of, of courses, which we can talk about if you want, but uh, the key one is if their law school offers something like entrepreneurial law, and they should try to get involved in a business venture clinic if their law school offers it. 
Right. Um, we created a business venture clinic eight or nine years ago at the University of Calgary. And that is uh, business venture clinics have arisen at some other law schools in the country. I don't know them well, but I know they at least exist on paper. And so if there's an opportunity to actually get in and start working with startup teams, that's as a student supervised by a professor or by mentors, that's very helpful to learning those, uh, learning the requisite skills. Yeah. It, if you're a, a young lawyer and you graduated from law school, the advice I'd give is get my book. Uh, it's not <laughs> completely self-interested, but I'm really unaware of, of any of the book that covers, covers the ground. And uh, and then start looking for opportunities to work with these kinds of companies. And you will learn by doing. That's how most lawyers learn most areas of law. The, the truth is no one leaves law school. And I know, Matt, you felt the same way. You never leave law school, walk into a law firm and go, I've got this. And you always, right. <laughs> you're terrified. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, you're drowning in a sea of ignorance. Um, and, Still am. And, yeah. And, and you... Uh, <laughs> You, you just learn by doing things over and over again. And so um, that's also the way you become a good good entrepreneur lawyer. Yeah, no, and that's great. Actually, it's funny because we're uh, in conversations with the University of Alberta crew that's trying to get the a venture clinic started up there. And obviously, I know you're helping mentor them along the way. So uh, we're trying to provide some resources there and we're hoping we can we can help out. But I'll, I'll put maybe just uh, another uh, conversation I had recently with uh, an acquaintance of yours or colleague, Jackie Walsh out of Dalhousie, uh, who runs a similar clinic from there. And she mentioned that when I kind of put the same question to her, that she said, you know, if you have a chance to work at a big firm or like an established firm for your first few years, that that would be very helpful in learning the basics to then apply to startup law. You seem like you've, you went through a similar trajectory. Do you think that that's, uh, and I'm not trying to create a controversy here, but would you give the similar advice or, or is yours a little bit a different approach? No, I think if, if, if you had... The opportunity working at a big firm for a year or two is a good idea. They will expose you to sort of the norms and practices surrounding corporate commercial law. They'll teach you good habits. You'll get some practice drafting documents. I don't think that's the only way to do it, though. I think practically speaking, you can pick up bad habits as well as good habits in a large law firm. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. If you've got a large client engaging in very large transactions, the overall philosophy you should bring to that as a lawyer, it seems to me, is make sure there's no surprises. Make sure that you have have tracked down every possible detail, you've crossed off every possible issue. Because if you're doing a $500 million bond deal, you just, you don't want surprises. (laughs) And the transaction's big enough that it can afford uh, a number of lawyers scrupulously attending to the details. A a startup company, on the other hand, cannot afford that. A startup company, the measure of a good lawyer isn't do they track down every issue and cross up every T and dot every I. The measure of a good lawyer for a startup is, are they smart enough to know what matters and what doesn't matter? What are the issues that need to be focused on because it'll be a real problem if they're not dealt with? And what issues are so unlikely or could be managed with business solutions down the road that they can just be left behind and ignored. Um, And those are two completely different philosophies. (laughs) And it's possible to to really be enculturated by a a large law firm into being incredibly risk adverse. 
But the truth is a startup company needs you to make judgment calls. You need you to say, well, look, this is an issue, but I we probably can safely ignore it. And, uh, and that, that is not um, the attitude for a risk adverse lawyer. That's an, you need to no have question. confidence. So, so it is possible that you can get bad habits out of a big law firm as well as, as, as good habits. What I would say is the most important thing to anyone who wants to start practicing these kinds of companies is to start practicing with them, is to go out and find them. And that's the good news too about working with early stage companies. Uh, you know, they don't already have pre-existing relationships with lawyers almost by definition. And if you're young, chances are a lot of the entrepreneurs you're gonna be talking to are young too. And if you happen to think that something like crypto is super fascinating, there's a whole bunch of lawyers in their 50s who think you're crazy, but, <laughs> but there's some 25-year-old entrepreneurs who think it's going to change the world. So you just right. have, I mean, it is a great place to go if you're interested in practicing law. Amazing. That's that's so good. So, and you, you kind of touched on it. So I would like to just quickly hear, uh, what areas would you recommend if you're just getting going? What areas do you need to know as a startup lawyer? Well, I'll tell you by referencing what I did wrong. I, I thought, well, you know, the startups I'm interested in are tech companies. Uh, I have to know a lot of intellectual property. So I actually did a master's down in the United States where I, at a law school down in the States where I did um, a lot of work in intellectual property. But then when I actually got out practicing with these kinds of companies, I found, yeah, maybe 5% of what they need is intellectual property, right? right. 60 or 70% of what they need is corporate finance. <laughs> Right. <laughs> raising money. Give me the money. <laughs> and, and, uh, raising money, dealing with shareholders, organizing board, dealing with crises uh, among management. That winds up being a big part of what they need. And then there's general corporate stuff. And then there's just contract stuff and employment stuff and a little bit of tax stuff. And there is IP, but it's just not, most of these companies don't spin off a lot of IP legal work. And so my advice to law students is, by all means, take a basic IP class, take a basic tax class, and then take some transactional classes if you have them, classes on M&A. But definitely take securities. Uh, that's very helpful. Securities and anything in the corporate finance area. If the, the law school has a class in corporate governance, take that. Because when you get right down to it, the boss of a CEO are the shareholders and the board. But CEO doesn't hire a lawyer based on how well do they do dealing with the subordinates of the CEO, right? Right. <laughs> Employees are important, but they're not what keeps the CEO awake at night. They're not the people whose job, the C, you know, who's, the CEO's job depends on those people. Right. Rather, the CEO spends most of their time worrying about managing the board, managing shareholders. And so uh, some experience understanding how corporate governance works, how corporate finance works, it's very helpful. Amazing. So just to quickly switch gears here and I get in one more question before I know you're a busy guy. I, I was reading the other day, I'm just going to pull up the quote here. In 2021, startups around the world raised $621 billion in funding, an 111% increase from the year before. We've seen startups become this almost mythical creature. We hear unicorns and you know all of this being thrown around, but there's no question. I think I also read a stat that like something like 44% of all the jobs since like 1980 or something like that have come from venture back companies in some way, shape or form. When students again, maybe come to you and say, Hey, is this like a viable option for me to actually pursue? Do you see a growing need for startup lawyers in particular? Do you think that this kind of class of lawyer will get its own sort of pathway where right now it's still a little bit corporate employment, whatever. Is that, is that changing? And is there a big need? Do you see? 
Yeah, I'm unaware of any economic trend that doesn't suggest we'll have more and more startups. The fact is, if you just look at Canada, the future of Canada is going to depend on our ability to, to create and then scale up Preach. technology companies. Yeah. And it is not going to be about to, to stay hewers of wood and drawers of water, entirely dependent on natural resource extraction. Right. Um, and we look at, at countries like Israel and the UK to a certain extent that have managed to build uh, you know, meaningful tech sectors. It's been done through startups, startups, venture capital, vibrant uh, public markets. It's been done through entrepreneurial law. And because I think that entrepreneurial law is going to grow increasing importance because I think there's increasing amounts of activity in the area. And it, it has been more activity every year that I've been involved in the legal industry, every year of my professional life. There's been more startup activity, more money going into these companies, bigger exits, um, bigger success stories. When I started 15 years ago, we never heard of a unicorn. Right. Uh, I don't think this term was even used. Uh, and, and now there are dozens, hundreds yeah. uh, around the world. And so my answer is yes. I think as this grows, people increasingly understand that entrepreneurial law is its own distinct discipline, that it's this blending of different areas of law, this focus on how legal terms evolve in a over the life of a rapidly changing company, that that is a distinct subject uh, in which to both practice and study. Amazing. Amazing. Love that answer. Uh, so are there, outside of your obvious fabulous textbook, are there any other Canadian resources that you would recommend to uh, startup lawyers? Uh, are there any good ones that you found particularly helpful? Well, I'm a great admirer of Chris Nichols' book on corporate finance. The second edition was published in 2013. And anyone who's read my book will read Chris Nichols' book and see that I copied his, um, <laughs> his approach because it's, right. it's, it's a practical, useful approach that goes beyond the law into uh, how things actually play out in practice, how things work in the real world. Uh, so that's, that's the other book I recommend. When students come to me and say, well, look, I'm interested in learning more, I always emphasize the value in understanding business and economics just generally. I uh, came to law school, as I said, as a philosophy major, uh, knew nothing about uh, business. And over the years, I've, I've read books about business, I've read books about economics, I've read books about picking stocks, and that has been very, very helpful in, in talking to clients. In particular, if you don't really know how financial statements work, you should probably take a, a look at a, at a book or article about it. They're not that complicated. They're, the logic's fairly straightforward. Lawyers aren't expected to create financial statements or cash flow models, but it's fantastically helpful if you can at least understand what they're telling you because they're what everyone is using, uh, that's your you know, all of your clients are using them to understand the business they're in. So, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, great advice, great advice, and uh, no, thank you for that. Is there anything I missed that you think, uh, again, your, your career's a, a long one with many roads, uh, winding roads in it, so, uh, but anything that, I, that you think I missed that we should have covered? No, I, I, I would say one thing that, uh, just because I'm an evangelist for this, one thing that Canada's going to need to do is it's going to need to scale up its businesses. 
when you look at the core statistics of company formation in Canada, the amount of patents we get for every dollar of venture capital invested, the size of the exits we get per dollar of venture capital invested, Canada does very well relative to the United States. Um, but when you look at how many big tech companies do we have right now, you, 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 find, you find surprisingly few. And the reason for that, I think, is at some point you have to provide the founders and invest, early investors in the company with an exit. And there are really only two exits. You either sell the company or you take it public. And what's been going on in Canada for the last 20 years, and I've I've written with co-authors articles about this, academic articles about this, is the public markets in Canada have not been that attractive uh, to right. new businesses. And so these startups have built themselves up to a certain level. And when the time comes and an exit needs to be provided, they usually wind up selling themselves. And in some industries like pharma or high tech, the purchasers are almost invariably not Canadian companies because the big pharma and tech companies are foreign. Right. And so we wind up kind of uh, becoming the hewers of wood and drawers of water and intellectual property as well. <laughs> the solution is for our public markets to become more attractive as a way for these startups to grow and mature so they can be built in Canada. And like Hewlett Packard and Xerox, throw off the human capital, the employees and officers and directors with experience in technology that will then go on to build the next generation of startups. So I would encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to think seriously about how we could improve our public markets, how we can make them more appealing to entrepreneurs so that these companies can be built here rather than just sold. And any, any suggestions there, or is it, that, that sounds like a complicated question. Well, it's a question I've spent most of the last eight or nine years uh, working on. I think, I think briefly, the pendulum has swung too far uh, against managers. I think we need to acknowledge that uh, a lot of the things we've done in the public markets haven't actually improved economic outcomes, and we need to give managers more autonomy than they currently possess to set up the governance arrangements that they think are best. Um, right. And that involves a, you know, a complete rethink um, <laughs> of the way we approach corporate governance in the last 40 years. Uh, and that's why I try to do my own small way with uh, my academic articles. But I think, I think governance should be generated in the public markets the same way it's generated, frankly, for startups in the private market, which is I think it should be a matter for the market. We should have less top-down imposition of best practices and more negotiation uh, between managers and employees and officers and directors and shareholders and debt holders about the governance arrangements a corporation is going to have. And I think we did that. Um, the public markets would become more appealing to entrepreneurs who, after all, became entrepreneurs because they wanted, they wanted control over their lives, often right. in ways that was impossible when they were just a low-ranking low employee in whatever, whatever company they'd worked for before they started the new business. Yeah, no, great thoughts. And uh, obviously, we'll be uh, charity on a good lawyer in, in your efforts there, no question. We'd love to stay in Canada, I'm being dead serious, you know, like, but if we do grow to a certain level, it's already, like you said, you're, it, 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 there's some difficult decisions ahead, right? So, yes. but that would certainly be in everyone's best interest and certainly ours to stay here, right? So, yeah. We, I, we fight with this all the time. I, I can't tell you the number of startups I've been involved with that we've wound up selling uh, to American firms or, We've wound up having to go to the United States to find right. senior management just because we can't find people with the skill sets we need here. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I feel you, Matt. It's a tough, <laughs> tough, tough question. Yeah. Well, and I know you said you were kicking around the idea of starting uh, a podcast yourself, even though you have not been on any uh, before this one. <laughs> but I hope I hope these are the types of topics that you'll bring up. And I certainly encourage you to uh, to do that, because I think that would be uh, well, like I said, I would certainly listen to it. And I'm sure there's many others. But uh, on that point, if people want to hear more from you, where, where can they find you? The easiest way to find me probably is on the University of Calgary website. But if they're interested in some of the things we've been talking about, there's the book, of course. And you can also find almost all my academic articles on the Social Science Research Network, which is SSRN. So if you're interested, for example, on uh, what's going on in our public markets, or if you're interested in um, why stock options are less than ideal uh, for startup companies and why the Canadian government is responsible for the fact that <laughs> stock options is all we use. Uh, you can find that article as well on the SSRN and, and they usually have citations to the law reviews or, or um, other academic journals that the articles are published in. So that's the best place to go looking. If Perfect. And you can always email me. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a dangerous, uh, dangerous offer right there. Well, uh, I, I, get, no- I get emails from... Young lawyers and uh, from entrepreneurs all the time. I like it. It sort of makes me feel like I'm connected to the to the practice in some way. Amazing. I love to hear that. And uh, we'll throw links up for all of this, obviously, in the show notes. Look, thank you so much for uh, coming on. It was great meeting you. Like I said, I, I don't know if I have too many uh, legal heroes, but you certainly helped guide my uh, my path and helped inform a, a lot of the ways that I, I approach startups and, and everything. So thank you very much for writing that book. I, I already showed you the highlights and the dog ears and everything else on the, that I have on that book. And I highly recommend that for anybody who's interested. It's top notch. And yep. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, Matt. It was a real pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. If you or a lawyer you know would like to find out more information about practicing on the Good Lawyer platform, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash four dash lawyers for all the details. Links, as always, in the show notes. Thanks for listening.